Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard, but by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the program grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. You've got Mr. and Mrs. White with you today. No kind of marital thing, but my history <laughs> podcasting wife, as I tend to refer to her, is in the house. Charlie, how are you doing? I'm very good. More importantly, how are you doing, aspiring Dr. White? Oh, I've spent the last um, 10 minutes bashing our guest's ear about why the Charity Commission is a really frustrating organisation to work with. <laughs> uh, but we won't go there. Best Who are we speaking to. to today? We have got a fabulous guest today. We've got Hannah Platts. She's Senior Lecturer in Ancient History and Archaeology at Royal Holloway and Co-Director of the Centre for the Study of the Body and Material Culture. She's author of Multisensory Living in Ancient Rome, Power and Space in Roman Houses. And she's joining us today to give us just a little flavour of her work. Hello, Hannah. Hello, thank you so much for inviting me to have a really exciting chat with you. I'm no, sure. we're really excited about this. This just sounds so interesting. Thank you very much. Thank yeah, you. I've got to say, we've been looking forward to this one for a while. And on the surface of things, this feels like a, a really bold area of study. And one that, you know, you kind of think about it and you'd assume that it was lost to us because we can potentially create an image of what the ancient world looked like with relative ease. You know, you've got the archaeology, you've got the physical stuff to kind of extrapolate. But you work on all of the senses. So what exactly are you looking at in your work on the sensations of Roman life? So I think one of the things you're right, when you say that, you know, you can recreate what you look at we, we we're potentially creating an image of the ancient world through the archaeology but what I want to do is to bring that 
far more to thinking about how the, the bodily experience, you know, the sounds, the smells, the tastes, the textures, as, as well as the sight. And I think the, the important thing about that is that when you are in a space, when you are in a building, you don't just see it. You hear it, you smell it, you feel it. And that's how we engage with our houses today. So why can't we look back at the archaeology and the texts on ancient Roman housing to explore how they bodily experienced their dwellings? And that's the thing. Because actually the Romans were tremendously keen about writing about their lived environment. And you can look back at the letters, um, the archeological, um, sorry, the uh, architectural treatises. And in these, there are so many discussions of the, the sound of the rain, the sound of bubbling water, the, the feeling of the sunlight and the organization of rooms to get the best sunlight at the best times of the day. So in that sense, what I really want us to be doing is, 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 is trying to bring to life those lived environments of the Roman house and trying to get us to think so much more that the house isn't just what you see from one room to another. You know, that's not what we do with our houses. You know, as I sit in this room talking to you, Yes, I can see my computer in front of me, but I'm also aware I'm feeling a little bit cold because the temperature has gone down. And that, you know, that impacts how I feel about the space I'm in. I, I'm also aware that outside there's noise going on. And so I'm thinking about, oh, that noise going on outside, what's going on um, outside in the world beyond my house? So I think it's really very much about trying to bring so much more to the fore um, the the fuller extent of living in the ancient world. I'm going to ask something that sounds like a really kind of dumb question because, in in a way, the answer the answer is obvious. But how is this developing our understanding of the past? Because it absolutely and that's not like a, an awkward question. It, it's a genuine question because it almost feels like you're unlocking an entirely different world. You know, kind of almost like going from a two D vision of something to a three almost perhaps four dimensional that's it's not a four dimensional but you know what I mean it, it's a complete kind of revolution in how we would think about the past yeah and and I think that's the thing I've been thinking about this for quite a while really since doing my PhD you know, when you look at a floor plan an archaeological floor plan and you look at the door doorways you actually see spaces between two rooms but you don't see the door depicted and yet in many of these, we know doors were. And if you go back to the actual houses themselves, go back to the archeological houses, you can see the remnants of um, doors in doorways in terms of post holes, for example, in terms of the remains of metal hinges. Now that might sound really basic, but if you're looking at an archeological floor plan that only depicts gaps between two rooms, you're not understanding how that those rooms can and sometimes are and sometimes aren't separated off. You're only actually seeing that room um, always open and connected with its neighboring rooms. So what I'm trying to do is think about how things like doors and windows impact space. You know, the, the, the fact that actually 
um, our authors were very well aware that you could shut off space according to how a space, how a room was going to be used. You could open up a space according to how it was going to be used. So what I'm wanting to do is be aware or, or try and emphasize how these things like archeological floor plans don't tell us everything. And that actually, if we start to think about the more complex ideas of where the doors were, where the windows were, whether they were closed off uh, or opened up, how that might mean the space is used differently at different times of the day. You know, the idea of rooms in Roman houses being used for one thing and one thing only is, is absolutely not. Bedrooms were used for sleeping in, but for also having business meetings, small intimate business meetings, or were used for, we have examples of actually sometimes people having little bites to eat in their bedroom. So actually suddenly by looking at the multi-sensory experience of the Roman house, we can actually start to understand that these spaces are far more complex than we might otherwise imagine. And I think that therefore allows us to open so many more avenues, so many more questions in our research. This is so interesting, Hannah. How did you get involved in this particular area of study? Is this, is this something that's a new development that we're we're just sort of opening up now due to the technology that we've got or is this something that's been floating around for a while because I mean from listening to you talk this feels like grounding and proof into the kind of things that historical fiction does and that reenactors do imagining all of that yeah and I think I mean that's the thing so there is there is very much in ancient history and archaeology, there's a developing desire to think about the embodied world, to think about the materiality of artefacts or the materiality, the, the, the experience, the bodily experience of, um, of the archaeology. Um, uh, and this is, this has been really sort of growing since about sort of 2010, 2012, that sort of time. Um, but what I have seen is that, you know, looking at Roman housing, this is something that hadn't been considered. Um, so this is what very much I wanted to be doing. The, the focus had always been, has always been about sites, you know, what you see within the Roman house, what your view out of the window is in the Roman house. Um, and so what I wanted to do is take this growing this sort of growing change in archaeology into looking at the sensory world of archaeology and apply this to thinking about Roman domestic space. But I think the point, you know, I mean, and actually this is, as I say, this is something I've been thinking about since my PhD, since I was reading the letters of Pliny the Younger, mm-hmm. when he very much colours his letters Um, He writes these wonderful descriptions of a number of his country residences. But where sight is important in his descriptions, actually you're only seeing part of the picture, you're only understanding part of the picture because he colours it with so much more. He colours it with the sounds, he colours it with the textures, the marble, the, 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 the decoration that he's brought into his dwelling, um, the feel of 
sun on the skin, you know, the temperature that he uh, uh, recreates, the idea of seclusion, you know, auditory seclusion that he tries to develop in terms of the structure or the architectural layout of his house. So looking at those letters, it was something I was always really aware of from doing my PhD. And then, as I say, in archaeology as a whole, the sensory turn has become that much more um, uh, a possibility to, to explore for archaeologists. Um, you make a really interesting point there about reenactment and reenactment communities. And it's, it's really interesting to think about what does that do for allowing us to start to think about the materiality of the past. You know, when you think about reenactments and the idea of touching the cloth that people wore or, or the weight of the clothing that people wore and actually how wearing certain items, um, how that might restrict movement, how that might impact on one's um, ability to, to, to move quickly or to move slowly. Reenactment is a really interesting way of starting to open up those questions of the, the, the experience of the past. And I think, I think it's certainly very interesting to, to, be, to be looking at that. Can I dig a little kind of deeper into what you were saying there about, you know, that process of piecing this all together, because it's, it's complex, isn't it? And even sort of description. So I'm thinking here, for example, of food. And we can have descriptions of food and, and some of the smells that were coming from that. But to recreate that, it's, very diff it's a very difficult process because you've got lots of things that make up what produces the aroma coming from food, including having even things like the correct utensils. You know, you can't just whack out the frying pan and, and chuck the ingredients in and, and hey, you're going to have a, a Roman meal because actually they're using a different method and different style of cooking. So how do you go about kind of putting all of this together to construct something that is authentic? I think that's the, I think that's a really important question. And actually, you can go and look at the archaeological finds um, first and foremost um, and look at the materials that are used and found within certain dwellings. You know, we do have evidence of certain uh, crockery or pottery, for example, uh, silverware, um, and, and, and think about, you know, how that might have been used. So, for example, looking at uh, certain pots where you can see evidence of burning so that you know that that was used on an open flame, for example. Those are, that's really important. Likewise, we can look to things like wall paintings um, or we can look to letters, descriptions and so on of, of, of um, how wines were served, for example. I mean, we've got some brilliant wall paintings um, and descriptions of wine being cooled with iced, iced water. Um, so that actually you can you that that then starts to open up questions of how did they experience wine? Is it how we experience wine and 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 so on and so forth? And we've got um, beautiful images uh, of slaves pouring what seems to be cooled snow melt water into wine to cool it to cool it down to make it that much more palatable for the diners. Um, I. I, I I think one of the crucial things to bear in mind is when you are thinking about the multi-sensory engagement with the past, we always have to be aware whatever we are doing 
we cannot assume that our perceptions are the same as perceptions of ancient audiences. Um, so that whatever we try and argue, whatever we try and answer has to be embedded with the research on the let, as I say, the writings and the archeology. span We cannot make assumptions that, you know, what I smell and experience in terms of how I respond to certain smells that actually ancient audiences would respond in the same way. Indeed, what's really interesting is every person has individual responses to sensory stimuli. So, for example, research suggests that men have a slightly less strong sense of smell than women. And, for example, as you age, your sense of smell decreases in terms of its uh, in terms of its strength. Um, and similarly, we know, you know, your sight declines, hearing declines. So these are the sort of questions that also need to very much be borne in mind when you are trying to engage with re, not recreating, but trying to understand the sensory realms of the past. And I think you're right, it is incredibly complex. And I would very much be wanting to say what I'm not trying to do is um, reconstruct. What I'm trying to do is open up the questions of what might it have been like? What, what does opening up the questions of the sensory pasts of Roman houses, what does that do to help us understand what it might have been like? But obviously that has to be bedded in the archeology span and the literature. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it absolutely does. And it reminds me of something we were discussing with Sonia Zakchevsky a few weeks back about disability in the ancient world and those challenges. And, you know, so for somebody like me with specs, you, you take away my specs and I'm blind and I'm completely useless. So in, in the ancient Roman world, nobody would have any use for me. You know, I'm going to be crawling through the gutter, not able to see you know, the, the, the horse and cart that's coming up behind me. Um, so, yeah, I, I really hear what you say. Thank you. And I think just actually added to that, sorry, I think the other side of it is as well, you know, if you're thinking about, we get habituated to smell, for example, quite, quite easily. Um, you know, when you walk into your house, you're quite used to the smells, but when someone else might walk into your house, um, they might smell things in a very different way. Um, think about when you go away on holiday and then you come back to your house and it's, it does smell different. It, you sort of re you sort of almost have to realign your sense of smell to that environment that you've returned back to. Um, and so I think that's the other side of it. We, can, we mustn't just assume that what we find disgusting or what we find pleasant is necessarily what would be seen as pleasant or disgusting by members of ancient society. Um, and indeed, you know, when you look at the different levels in ancient society of the elite and the lower classes and so on and so forth, again, to what extent might um, status actually be connected with one's sensory experience or sensory perception? So, again, that's that's another question that always needs to be sitting at the back of at the back of our minds. Absolutely, because there's a question of association there, isn't there? And this goes back to a recording that we've done in the last couple of days with LJ Trafford, talking about questions of perfume and associations of, you know, if you're a Roman woman, then sure, that's great, wear perfume. But if you're a Roman man and you're perfuming your feet, 
you know, that there are all kinds of questions are, are raised about you. And so, you know, there's, there's a difference, a, a distinction there to, and a balance to be struck between, well, you're meant to be clean as a Roman man, but you're not to the point where you're making yourself smell particularly pleasant. So, you know, you know whereas we today would use aftershave, that has a, a very different kind of distinction in the ancient world. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and also, indeed, different things can be done at different times. So, for example, uh, we do have evidence of oils and perfumed oils being used at dinner parties, for example. And is that because of you sitting in fairly close proximity with other people? Or is that actually about the owner trying to control um, what is smelt um, before it comes through the through the door? I mean, one of the things is that if you're putting on a Roman dinner party, the idea of... Um, your guests not actually smelling or knowing what's going to come and be served to you before it turns up in front of you. So is that where perfumed oils might be used actually to sort of mask all the stuff going on outside the cook, mask the smells of what's going on outside, and then actually when it arrives in front of you, ta-da, that's the big reveal. And there's all sorts of questions about you know what you can do at certain times and and why certain things are being employed certain sensory experiences are being encouraged at certain times and in certain places and for certain people this sounds like a sort of heston blumenthal michelin star you know full experience of your meal <laughs> oh i i i i absolutely agree and, and you know if you look to the you know the 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 writings and you look to the mosaics and you look to the wall paintings, you see this. Uh, there are some fabulous wall paintings of, and it's, 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 it's actually really poignant because you actually see these individuals reclining and dining and having a fabulous time. And then you see their slaves, you know, holding up drunken guests as they as they vomit or or putting shoes <laughs> onto the feet of drunken guests or whatever so I think you're absolutely right there that it becomes you know so filled with experience and so actually the dinner party isn't just about taste in terms of what you're eating it's about taste in terms of what's acceptable you know fashions and tastes and trends but also then it's about the rest of the bodily experiences oh amazing well uh, i mean i've got i've got a sense of smell like a bloodhound and uh, we had ellery cousins on talking about ancient roman worship and one of the things she told me about was a temple to mithras that they found and they excavated burnt pine cones and all i could think of was how much i wanted to go gather some pine cones and burn them so I could smell that. But what do we know about what the sensory norms are in a, in a Roman house day to day? Not, not these sort of big special things, you know, the temples and, and the dinner parties. On a day to day, what do we what do we hear? What do we feel? What do we taste? So what's really interesting, and I, I, I your point about not the special things, but actually what I've what I've found in my study of the sensory environments of Roman houses is that, yeah, you've got some really big residences of sort of 50 rooms or more. 
And you've got some pretty small residences of under 10 rooms. But some of these attempts to control the sensory environment of the house, or have at least an ability to control the sensory environment of the house, can be seen in both the big and the small dwellings, which I think is really, really interesting. So, for example, we often find that kitchens and toilets are located together. Um, now, the question behind that is, is that about putting all the, the yucky sensory experiences together in one place? And of course, who is in the kitchen? You know, generally that would be the slaves would be doing the food production. Even in relatively smaller dwellings, you are likely to have, you know, maybe one, maybe a couple of slaves. So is it about keeping the toilet and the kitchen um, together because that's where the nastier sensory experiences occur? But what we also see is that kitchens and toilets combined, we often find they're, they're an attempt to locate them at a distance from um, main reception areas of the dwelling. Now, obviously, in bigger dwellings, that is much easier to do. You potentially can put them on different levels, i.e. different stories of the residence, or you can put them down a, down a long corridor and at a, quite a distance. But what we do see is even in the smaller dwellings, the, the 10 room dwellings and smaller, we see an attempt to possibly put the kitchen and toilet on the other side of a small open area so that um, smells and, and sounds will be dissipated um, as it travels across that smaller open area, maybe across a small peristyle. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. A, a small internal, a small garden. Um, so we see that that's very interesting. Um, other things to think about, with houses where there is the atrium, which is the entrance area, entrance sort of reception room of the Roman house, um, often these um, atria, um, these sort of reception halls, they often had a, a sunken, um, square or rectangle in the floor and above that would be a hole in the roof and that would let water in rainwater which could then be siphoned off and, and and go into storage areas which and that water could then be used elsewhere within the, the roman dwelling so you would then think you know as if if it's wet outside not only would you have the breath of the uh, of the of the wind coming through that open ceiling, but you'd have the sound of the water as it falls into the marble basin underneath. And you'd hear it and you'd, and again, that would have a, a cooling effect. And we, again, we see these open air, these open areas, these, these um, uh, open holes in the roof um, called the compluvium and the basin underneath called the impluvium. We see these in big dwellings, but also in, relatively smaller dwellings as well. 
So it becomes really interesting. We, again, in, an, in many, many dwellings, irrespective of size, we see evidence of door architecture or window architecture. Mm. So the ability to close off spaces from one part to the other, the ability to close off a window, um, maybe because of inclement weather, for example. Um, so what's really interesting and what I found so fascinating about my work is that it's not just members of Rome's elite who are trying to have some ability to control that embodied physical experience within the house. We do see this across different levels of and different examples of housing from the small to the really, really big. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Presumably, this varies according to class, though, and I'm struck by what you're saying here about you know, in these these bigger dwellings of 50 plus rooms, there's a certain way of doing things. And then in the smaller dwellings, 10 or less, again, you've got different processes, but you've also got things like apartments for those who really don't have a lot of money. So how do we see this kind of changing in terms of the different experiences between rich and poor and, and, and slaves as well? You know, so what are the variations at play here? Yeah, I, so, I mean, let me start with slaves. For, I, I mean... <laughs> Actually, a rewind on that one, actually, because one of the things to bear in mind here is there, there would be variation, um, certainly. Um, but I think the thing to bear in mind is that even when you take the example of slaves, your, the experience of a slave will vary because slaves in the Roman house have different roles. So you have, for example, the slave who will announce um, uh, visitors to the house. Uh, in some houses, you will have the bedroom slave who will attend to bedroom needs, irrespective of what those may be, and those could be quite varied. You would have uh, gardeners um, if you have a, a residence with an outside garden or indeed an internal garden. And we do find uh, residences that have what are internal gardens, um, you would have cooks and you would have um, serving staff. Um, now, not all residences will have that array of slaves, but I guess what I'm trying to make clear is that there are different roles for different slaves. And so your experience as a slave will be impacted by what your own role is. So if you take, for example, the difference between a cook in the Roman kitchen and serving staff, actually the experience of a, a cook 
in the Roman kitchen could be really quite horrible. You know, when we look at the remains of Roman kitchens, we see these as pretty dark spaces. They would be incredibly hot. Um, they would be, there's very little evidence of significant ventilation. There may be the odd small high up window and that would be providing an element of air that would be providing an element of light but the kitchen was a space where you would have an possibly a number of individuals coming in and out bringing dishes in taking dishes out you may have a number of different cooks within that kitchen depending on how big the house is and how many slaves it had um, so the kitchen could be a really, really quite dangerous place to have as your working environment and your, your place of, of, of work. You know, if you think there's been some brilliant work done, really excellent work done on the height of um, cooking um, benches, of, of, of ovens, and, you, and, and actually they're quite low down. So potentially you would be, as a chef, or as a cook, uh, you would be sort of hunched over a very hot fire, open fire, burning your arm, burning your hands. Um, the grease, the oil from the food that you're cooking, the smell sort of getting sort of embedded in your nostrils, in your clothing, in your hair. Um, now that's one experience, but in the same house, the slaves who worked in the serving, in the room, in the, in the dining room itself, you know, if we look at the literature, they were to be beautiful. They were to be smooth skinned. They were to be pleasantly spelling, smelling, or at least they were not to stink like the cooks in the kitchen. They were to be aesthetically pleasing and touch to have a nice youthful possibly you know sexually attractive so that's the thing actually the experience even of the slaves in the roman household will ultimately vary depending on your role and what's really interesting is if you look at the literature we see this being unpicked by the authors themselves so we see um the authors saying you know if you've got a cook the most important thing about that cook is not what he looks like, not what he sounds like, but it's his ability to taste. He has got to have a sense of taste, you know, as good as the master of the house. Serving staff, on the other hand, serving slaves, need to be pleasing to the eye, need to be pleasing to the sense of smell, need to, you know, that actually they are not um, abhorrent to look at or abhorrent to smell or touch or, or anything. So it's very different. It's very difficult to answer what would it have been like for groups of society, because there would be variation within those groups, I think. I think the other thing also to flag up is the literature that we have is written in the main by men and elite men. So we are only ever seeing it from their viewpoint. When we go to the archaeology, that can help to open up the sensory experience of 
lower classes, of different individuals, of the women, of the children, of the slaves. That might help open up, and it does help open up those questions. But whenever we're looking at the literature, we've got to be aware that that literature comes from an elite viewpoint. So how far we can ever recreate that slave experience exactly is going to always be problematic. That said, we can certainly open up the questions. And as I say, the work that's been done on Roman kitchens, even looking at the doorways into Roman kitchens, we see that these are smaller often. So to, to sort of almost earmark out that this is a space where it is not on the general um, access route for visitors to the house, it is a smaller doorway, which highlights that that's a less important part of the house. And it's not for open use, it's, it's it, for all visitors, rather it's, it, it sort of almost guides um, slaves that that's their space, you know, that's where the slaves will be. It, it almost tells the owners, the visitors, um, and so on, you know, that is the kitchen, don't bother going into that, if that makes sense. I'm hoping that the small door means that the chefs were small, because if you've got low work surfaces, that's a surefire way to give yourself a very bad back. Um. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it really is eye opening when you then because, as I say, you wouldn't have got that. We wouldn't have got that understanding from the literature on uh, ancient housing in the same way as by looking at the archaeology and combining it with the literature, but by looking at the archeology, span you can start to see, crikey, what must it have been like to work in these dark, dingy, smelly, poorly ventilated rooms with low um, kitchen counters or, or low oven counters? That sounds absolutely horrific. Let's get away from, let's get away from the smell of the kitchen. I don't want to be slaving over a hot stove anymore. I want to be the ultimate Roman hostess. So I know you've, we've mentioned, we've touched upon Roman dinner parties and this is, this is just sounding like a themed evening that needs to happen at my house. What would guests have expected when they turned up for my Roman dinner party? So, um, I mean, that's the thing. It, again, and it sounds like I'm putting a caveat in here, there isn't a one-size-fits-all. Um, I mean, we have the most amazing description of dinner parties. Um, dinner parties put on by freedmen, i.e. Uh, individuals who had been slaves but who were now freed um, into society and not no longer enslaved. But we also have wonderful um, letters of people describing their dinner parties, you know, free-born individuals like Pliny describing his dinner parties, or, or indeed we have the great, the really excellent example of dining with the Emperor Domitian. And Cassius Dio, a Roman historian, writes about the black dinner party, where Domitian, um, who was renowned by um, many members of Roman elite classes to be completely and utterly psycho, uh, complete psycho as an emperor. But what he does was he um, painted, he, he put on this, this dinner party and he painted the room black. He got uh, all the furniture to be covered in black cloth. He, um, he had the lighting was very measly, very, very small, using funerary lamps. 
and in front of the diners were were sort of references to burial and and tombs and so on and he was the only one allowed to speak at this dinner party and he spoke on topics of death uh, and funerals um uh, and indeed what he also did was he took away so so when the people when the guests arrived and they arrived with their own personal slaves he actually took away their slaves and said no you won't be using your slaves at this dinner party you'll be using my slaves at this dinner party so what he did was he made it very much a, a, a very scary experience because he controlled everything about their experience but also it was dark it was it, everything was controlled to to sort of give suggestions of darkness of death of of to instill fear in, in his diners. Now that's one example, uh, right at the sort of upper end of oddness and, and, and cruelty, I, I, I would say. But we do have really good examples of, of basically the whole multi-sensory realm of the dinner party. You know, we have Marshall's epigrams, uh, which are fabulous. Um, and they tell us about a freedman called Zoilus, who basically his dinner party was the ultimate in bad taste because what he did was he just, he reclined and had his slaves fanning him and he would just sort of, and he made it very clear those who he liked and those who he didn't, those who he saw, who he perceived to be important, he gave them better food, gave them better wine and those others at the dinner party he was less bothered about he gave them the, the, the cruddy stuff, the rubbish food, the, the poorer quality wine, the, the poorer quality bread. And indeed, we see this, we, we read about this from a number of sources where people say, oh, don't go to this person's dinner party because they really make it clear who what they think of you. They'll put you at the lower couch to show that uh, you, are, you are of absolute no importance to them because... When you sat at the dinner party, you were organised according to your perceived status and how the owner perceived your status. So we get these letters and writings saying, oh, don't go to so-and-so's dinner party because he will stick you at the really rubbish seat. And literally, you are just there to make up numbers. And then we get wonderful letters from Pliny the Younger where he criticises the dinner parties of his compatriots and says, oh, I hear that so-and-so, well, when you go and eat at his house, he always serves different layers of food or different types of food or different quality of food and drink to different individuals. And then he says, but I myself, I don't do that. I feed everyone the same and they all eat the same as me. But of course, what he's doing there, just as what all these other examples, he's again just showing status. Because he's saying, I will feed you the same as everyone else. So I'm showing how beneficent I am. Just the gifts that I am giving to you as my diner. So when we think about the Roman dinner party, again, it, it isn't a, a one size fits all. but it's, And that's what's so glorious about it. Because actually, it's where people can really parade their own sense of power, their own self-worth but also they can show what they perceive of their diners. Um, and so, you know, it becomes this complete um, array of 
sensory experiences of the sounds. And I, I mean, we've got we've got wonderful wall paintings talking about um, sort of singing at the dinner party. You know, written written words in Latin on the on the on the a depiction of a dinner party where it says, "Oh, I'll sing, shall I?" Um, or or we've got evidence of dice and counters, possibly suggesting people might even play games and stuff at the dinner party. Um, we've got evidence from, again, Pliny the Younger, um, saying, oh, well, when at my dinner party, I, we, we, we listen to poetry readings, or we listen to this or that, or a little bit of music. Um, so all of this, it's about, again, how you can use these different experiences in the dinner party to show your own status, or what you want to show of your status, but also what you perceive of everyone else's status. Does that help? Yeah, this is, well, look, you've given me lots of ideas. I'm just popping off to being q now to get some black paint. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. Who are you putting? It's, it's genuinely like, you know, at weddings and people talk about, you know, who's been stuck near the box. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's all of that all over again, isn't it? The shade. I, wanna, I know. Just, it's, it's just so vicious it's it's almost like an episode of the only way is essex not that i've watched many episodes <laughs> of the only way is essex i hasten to add um i want to talk about the complexities of putting all of this together though because you've been involved in things like 4d virtual reality experiences based around roman villas haven't you how do you kind of help to to bring your research to that so what has been really good with doing this is um, I've been working with um, psychologists and electronic engineers. And so the, the work that I have done in um, looking at, our, uh, looking at um, literature, looking at um, the built environment, I've then filtered into um, the recreated uh, virtual reality um, dwellings that we have reconstructed or that we have Sort of, I, I, we haven't rebuilt them, we've recreated them because that's the point. We're never going to get back to what it actually was. Um, but what's really important and what's really difficult about that is it all takes such time to reconstruct or, or, or recreate um, these, these um, environments. And one of the things, so one of the environments that I worked on was a recreation. Um, um, of a residence from Silchester. And the difficulty, the real difficulty we had with this, and yet the real beauty we had with this, was that the residence has been uh, excavated over a very long period of time. It first excavated during the Victorian period and then excavated over sort of the last 20 or so years. And we've got some very detailed finds, but Actually, if you go to the site itself, it's just a random field now because the excavation has been covered over. So it just looks like any old field. So the question is, how do you get that wonderful excavational information out there into the public realm? Because for archaeologists, you know, we know how to read floor plans or we know how to read the excavation reports and so on. But actually, for a lot of people who don't study archaeology, or indeed, even for some archaeologists, it's like, yeah, okay, that's yeah, that's not really what I, I I want to now understand the the implications of these finds. So actually, that was the thing that 
has been really important in working on virtual reality is that looking at these excavation reports has given us that ability to, to start bringing, start opening up those finds and trying to say, well, okay, so here we found evidence of um, a cesspit, or here we found evidence of a half, and then saying, right, okay, so now let's build the environment around that and start thinking about how that might impact on the, the experience of that space. But crucially, this site at Silchester that we developed in virtual reality, nothing is visible now. So really what we're trying to do is there is an element, and it is difficult, but there is an element of artistic license as well. And I think that's the thing, when you're working on virtual reality and you're working on these recreations or reconstructions, you always need to be aware that there are, it, it is based on interpretation as well as everything else. And that needs to be made clear. So that's what we very much try to say, you know, this is a reconstruction. Uh, we have interpreted the archaeological finds in this way. Um, and that is one of the really big complexities of, of working with um, virtual reality, working with augmented reality, and trying to put these archaeological finds or these literary finds into a different type of medium. You've always got to be aware that there is interpretation behind it. Interpretation isn't a problem so long as you make it clear or so long as you're aware that and you make it clear to your audience that that is a choice that has been made and that you're prepared to answer why that choice has been made and that the choice has been made because it's based on evidence. It's not just something you've plucked out of the air because you think it would be quite nice to, to have. Um, so I think that's the, that's the difficulty. It's about trying to juggle the finds and the stories of those finds to make them accessible, but also make them as accurate as possible, but as engaging as possible. And, and engaging and accuracy don't, don't always meet. So that's why I do think virtual reality and I do think augmented reality have a really good role to play in this, but they are, it is not about recreating an accurate, a totally fully accurate, it's recreating an interpretation and that, that's what needs to be made clear. It's, it's so, so interesting. I mean, we're, we're talking about virtual reality. It's like, I feel like we're talking about, about the future. This feels so futuristic and it's, and it's now. So this is almost a, feels a bit of a daft question, but where, where is this going, this field of study? Where, where is it going to go in the future um, as, a, as a branch of historical inquiry, looking into sensory stuff? Oh, I, I, I mean, I think... I think there is so much more to do on this. I mean, first and foremost, in what I'm currently working on and, and, and developing is, is actually, and it, it comes back to um, a point that Zach, you made earlier actually about apartments and living in apartments. You know, actually what I want to do now is because, because my book specifically was about single occupancy dwellings, i.e. Uh, the domus or the villa, which were, which were lived in by a, a, a family, you know, but what I actually now want to be doing is, is, is looking at, OK, well, what does it mean when we start thinking about apartments and thinking about when you've got different layers, you know, living one on top of the other? Or indeed, you know, uh, where you've got maybe actually a number of families living in, uh, uh, you know, living in spaces uh, and how that might impact on um, relationships, hierarchies, 
um, you know, how might the sensory world in which they find themselves, how might that impact on their relationships, their, their engagement with their community, with, with, with each other. So I guess that's one thing that I very much want to do. I want to be now looking into um, the um, multi-sensory experience of insuli, these, these apartment blocks, and indeed thinking more about, so um, what about the, the multi-sensory living of the really the, the really destitute of society? Can we actually, because where I've been talking about houses of 50 plus rooms or indeed houses of 10 rooms, mm. well, what about those who really, really, I mean, who maybe lived in a room behind a shop, for example? How do we recreate, how do we understand their life, their experience, particularly given that they're not part of the literary realm either? So I think that's really where I, I want to be going with this um, and I think that that could be incredibly exciting to 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 add more to those voices that we don't necessarily hear um, quite so well from the literature how do we go about re understanding those experiences that's where I want to to go with this and in terms of the virtual reality in terms of the augmented reality I'm currently working on a project of augmented reality and recreated multi-sensory experiences in augmented reality which is obviously quite different to virtual reality because it's uh, it's a it's a very different experience but that is a that is a project that's in development so uh, watch this space on that one that sounds incredibly exciting hannah thank you so much for this it's just been so interesting and I know we sometimes on History Hack we use that word interesting a lot but sometimes you just kind of get an interview where you go wow and and this was definitely one of those so your book multi-sensory living in ancient Rome power and space in Roman houses is out how else can people kind of stay up to date with what you're doing are you on Twitter I am and my <laughs> my Twitter handle is at chatty platy fabulous and you may have understood, I can talk a lot, hence the reason my Twitter handle is Chatty Platty, and it has a picture of my guinea pig. Um, <laughs> my guinea pig, who is, uh, I'm slightly obsessed with guinea pigs. As well as Roman houses, guinea pigs rule my life. So, so there we go. <laughs> Maybe there's an episode in the pipeline about the history of guinea pigs. Be oh, indeed, indeed, indeed. <laughs> Anna, thanks ever so much. Thank you so much. Hello folks, Zach again here. As you know, we love bringing you these podcasts, but each episode has a huge investment of time behind it. For every hour of showtime, there's often a good four or five or six hours of work that's going in behind the scenes. We want to bring you more content, video content even, but as reality has hit and the need to earn a living has returned, we just haven't been able to do that. That's where you come in. Your support doesn't need to be financial. You can follow us on Twitter at hack underscore history. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe on YouTube. Even simple likes, shares and retweets make a huge difference in widening our reach beyond the small army of you who tune in. And if you love the show, leave a review. If all our listeners were able to find the two minutes to do that, it would massively increase our reach. Of course, we totally get that times are hard and money is tight. If you can spare something and want to, there are different ways that you can help. If you want to become a regular supporter, 
check out patreon.com forward slash history hack. There are all kinds of perks across different levels of support, with prices starting at £3 a month. If you just want to send us a one-off tip, then visit co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description to this episode. But importantly, also have a think about supporting our listeners. The hour they spend with us is a minuscule fraction of the time that they spend researching and writing their books. With that in mind, we set up the History Hack bookstore, where you can support both them and us instead of funding Jeff Bezos's next trip into space, which is what pretty much happens when you buy via Amazon. Again, the link is in the description, and we have a huge back catalogue of titles written by our guests. When you buy via uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, we get a percentage, and so do independent booksellers. Whatever form your support takes, we massively appreciate it. So from Alex, Boney and me, and the rest of your down-the-pub regulars, thank you, and have a great day. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 